All of Mahler's first four symphonies make extensive use of songs. They're either present as whole songs, as in symphonies 2, 3 and 4, or in the form of substantial quotations, purely orchestral this time, as in symphony number 1. Yet, as always, that element of Mahlerian ambiguity remains. Is the song's meaning all it seems literally? And does the presence of songs like this explain the symphony, wholly or partly, or is there an element of riddling or even teasing? None of the symphonies after four rely quite so explicitly on song. In fact, only one, the monumental Symphony No. 8, contains any writing for voices, unless, that is, one counts the so-called Song Symphony, Das Lied von der Erde, the Song of the Earth, which is partly song cycle, partly symphony, and wholly individual. Perhaps the best thing is to say that it creates a genre in its own right. Yet the relationship between the purely orchestral symphony and the music that sets texts in Mahler's output continues to be fascinating. It's hugely important throughout the Symphony No. 5, which combines quotations or references or allusions to the songs with the purely musical elements of the argument in the process of providing new kinds of pointers to possible meanings. In last week's programme, we saw how the opening of Symphony No. 5 was anticipated in the first movement of the Fourth Symphony, an unsettling anticipation for those in the know. Here, in the middle of a symphony leading to a child's view of heaven, we have a premonitory shudder, a glimpse of one of Mahler's grimmest funeral marches. Now... In Symphony No. 5, we have the full gothic horror and splendour of the funeral march, the pomp of death on a massive, possibly national scale. All the trappings of a grand state funeral, touched with a kind of Edgar Allan Poe horror. 
But then after that music comes a softer, lamenting string theme. The mood of this movement keeps switching between almost luxurious grotesquerie and something much more poignant and desolate. This latter mood is very much like a song from Des Knaben Wunderhorn. In fact, it's one of the last of these settings that Mahler composed, almost exactly contemporary with Symphony No. 5, 1901. It's a heart-rendingly touching song called Der Tamburgesell, the drummer boy, about a pathetic drummer lad about to be executed for desertion. Can his crime really merit this punishment? The poor boy seems caught in an implacable process, which is, after all, the German for trial, almost like one of Kafka's anti-heroes. The horror of death and the utter aloneness that we all feel in the face of it saturate the song. The character of the themes and the sounds, especially sombre low brass and military percussion with plenty of ominous low gong strokes, comes very close indeed to that of the first movement of the Fifth Symphony, but stripped of the latter's opulent grandeur, all we get are the grimness and the agony. of death are evoked in the first movement of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. One grandly, grimly splendid, and the other pathetic and lonely. The drummer boy shivering in the dark, tormented by the mental image of the towering gallows. Mahler knew all about the random, implacable cruelty of death, especially as it affected children. He lost several of his siblings in childhood and spent two weeks watching over the deathbed of his dying brother Ernst when he was 13. Actually, infant mortality was common enough in the 19th century, especially in poorer families like Mahler's. Still, the young Mahler was clearly enormously impressionable, and the death of his brother left a deep mark. The rest of Mahler's Fifth Symphony can be seen as an attempt to escape from this sense of hopelessness or helplessness in the face of an implacable mortality. 
In the symphony, there's an association of the funeral march with the key of C-sharp minor, which is sometimes said to be the symphony's home key, but it isn't really, because having left C-sharp minor in the first movement, we never return to it. The rest of the symphony, tonally speaking, can be understood as a striving away from C-sharp minor towards D major, a semitone higher. We glimpse this brighter key briefly in the second movement, then it appears as a phantasmagoric vision in the huge scherzo third movement, then finally it's achieved with real solidity in the finale. The first arrival of D major in the symphony is associated with a song, though this time not one by Mahler. It's a traditional song, an old German carol, Wie schön leuchtet der Morgenstern. We know it as How Brightly Shines the Morning Star. Here's a bit of it in Bach's harmonization. Listen especially to the rise of the first phrase. <laughs> phrase of that chorale appears, in a Mahlerized form, on blazing brass at the climax of the second movement, the movement Mahler marked stormy and vehement. From the very sound of it, you guess that it's a symbol of hope, and that association with the old image of the morning star just underlines it. Yet the hope doesn't last, nor does the blazing brass. It collapses under its own weight, back into the tragedy at the start of the movement. The second movement of Mahler's fifth ends with very similar bleak skeletal sounds as those which close the first movement, the funeral march. So now we sense that the narrative threads of this symphony are beginning to draw together. Images of death, images of striving, a brief glimpse of hope, and then a collapse of hope back into thoughts of death. 
Eventually, in the Fifth Symphony, that carol-like chorale does return in full triumph and in D major. It's possibly Mahler's most life-affirming conclusion to a symphony. It's surrounded with string figures like peeling bells that remind one very strongly of Mahler's mentor and symbol of simple, authentic faith, Anton Bruckner. So what's the turning point between these two statements of this hymn-like theme? The crucial element that makes it work the second time round? That answer is not really to be found in the fantastical, manic D major scherzo, tour de force though it is, but in the orchestral song without words that follows, the famous adagietto for strings and harp. Many have heard intimations of a love song here. And if that's the case, it's obvious who the recipient is. This is the time when Mahler had just met his great love and soon-to-be wife, Alma Schindler. But does the music confirm this? Is there a hint of song here, perhaps, that suggests that we're on the right track? Yes, there is. Also around the time that Mahler wrote the Fifth Symphony, he composed five settings to poems by the 19th century poet Friedrich Rückert. These are collectively known as the Rückert Lieder, though Mahler doesn't ever seem to have seen them as a distinct entity, a cycle in their own right. The greatest of these, by common consent, is the gorgeous and otherworldly Ich bin der Welt abandon gekommen, I am lost to the world. But the climax of this song comes at the words Ich liebe allein in meinem Himmel, in meinem Lieben, in meinem Lied. I live only in my heaven, in my love, in my song. Concentrate, if you can, on the descending string phrases on the repetition of that key phrase, in meinem Lieben, in my love.
Now, here's the end of the Adagietto from the Fifth Symphony. Slightly higher in pitch, but I'm sure you'll feel the connection. In my heaven, in my love, and in my song. That's where I live, says Mahler in his Rukert lead, and also, it seems, in those closing bars of the Adagietto of the Fifth Symphony. As I said, Mahler had recently had his decisive meeting with Alma, and now the love she represented, this almost idealised love, becomes the turning point of his Fifth Symphony. I'm reminded of some words from the Old Testament, love is strong as death. That does seem to be what Marlam is hinting at here. Interestingly, though, Alma herself was not completely convinced by Marla's Fifth Symphony's happy ending. Perhaps that was a pointer to future tensions in their relationship, or maybe a well-grounded distrust of Marla's idealising tendency. Marla seems quickly to have identified Alma as some kind of goddess, and many years later, Sigmund Freud diagnosed in him a Holy Mary complex. Is she the bright morning star? Is that Alma, the Virgin Mary, the goddess? Or perhaps it's just simply that Alma didn't feel the end of the Fifth Symphony work musically. Some don't. For others, though, the fact that the ending doesn't quite convince is part of its power and pathos. And that idea of ambiguity is, after all, so Marlerian. But there's one other fascinating strand of reference, this time explicitly connected with the song, in Mahler's Fifth Symphony. At the time Mahler wrote Symphony No. 5, he wasn't widely accepted as a composer by the critics. For many, he would have been seen as a great conductor who also composed, to which quite a few would have added, unfortunately. Alma's own father, a distinguished painter and artistic connoisseur, was one of them. Apparently he told his daughter, he composes too, but they say it's no good. How things have changed. Even at this stage, critics were still complaining about Mahler's technical skill, or lack of it. Especially, they drew attention to his apparent inability to create convincing counterpoint. Mahler was determined to make a riposte. Alma tells us that he took Bach's great 48 preludes and fugues with him on holiday, kept them on the piano all the time, so that he could study the greatest of all contrapuntists. And Mahler makes the finale of his Fifth Symphony a colossal display of fugal and polyphonic skill. What's interesting, though, is that before he begins this, he makes a striking reference to another song from Des Knaben Wunderhorn, Lob des Hohenverstands, in praise of the highest understanding, or lofty intellect. The song tells of a singing competition between birds, judged by a donkey. The donkey chooses the cuckoo, 
because his song is simple, easy to remember, and the donkey can understand it. He feels safe with it. He calls it Gut Choral, not an easy phrase to translate into English, but certainly the connection with the choral at the end of the Fifth Symphony is hard to miss. So the donkey misses the far subtler mastery of the other birds and opts for the simplest, the most banal of them all. How interesting that Mahler should quote that explicitly at the beginning of the finale of his finest demonstration of contrapuntal skill to date. To get the full effect, we'll hear the song first, then segue into the beginning of the finale.
Lob des hohen Verstands in praise of the higher understanding, followed by part of the finale of Mahler's Fifth Symphony, the work in which Mahler attempted to make donkeys of all his critics. This is Radio 3, and you're listening to Discovering Music with me, Stephen Johnson. This relationship between song and symphony is especially extensive and rewarding to study in the Fifth Symphony, not least because it's all done without voices or any of the original words. Such connections are thinner on the musical ground in the next two symphonies, 6 and 7, but they are there, certainly in the 7th symphony. Perhaps that's not too surprising that Mahler's next symphony, the 6th, should have avoided this kind of explicit relation to song, because despite its huge resources, the 6th is in many ways Mahler's most classical symphony. The four movements are laid out, despite their vastness of scale, on a broadly classical layout. There's even an exposition repeat in the first movement, just as there would be in a Haydn, Mozart or Beethoven symphony. There's a great stress on thematic and tonal unity in the Sixth Symphony, which is fascinating because when one considers classical Greek tragedy, the idea of unity there, for instance the so-called three unities, time, place and action, are essential to the aesthetic of the drama. Mahler's Sixth Symphony comes closest of all to that idea. So here's a fascinating paradox. The Sixth Symphony is emotionally volcanic, yet it's also one of the most formally contained. Mahler gave the Sixth Symphony the title Tragic. He withdrew this for the premiere, reinstated it for the second performance, and then withdrew it again. Perhaps, though, there was a reason for this, because I don't think Mahler was thinking of so much of the modern understanding of the word tragedy, as, for instance, our tabloid newspapers tend to use it. Again, I think, he had in mind the ideas of the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche saw ancient Greek tragedy as the highest, the sanest, the healthiest kind of art. Why? Precisely because it could confront the seemingly meaningless suffering of the world and yet still enable us, as he put it, to say yes to life. Well, that's a debatable theory. But it is striking that this symphony that seems so focused on black, on dark and tragic imagery is one of most Mahler's fabulously alive and ceaselessly inventive scores. Generally speaking, Mahler leaves the music of the Sixth Symphony to speak for itself. And yet there are still quite clear sound symbols. 
They're particularly clear in the case of the cowbells, which remind us how much Marla drew comfort from his alpine walks. And there's another sound. This is actually the first time it's used in a symphony. It's an instrument that's famous from Tchaikovsky's use of it in the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from the Nutcracker. It's the little bell-like keyboard instrument, the Celeste. We hear it at the heart of the first movement, part of a tableau of sounds, all still and eerily peaceful, that interrupt the driven, violent march music of the first movement. In that passage, the Celeste has an ethereal, innocent sound, almost like a child's toy. Yet there's something faintly unsettling about it, too. Well, Mahler had already used the Celeste just once in a song cycle with a very strong connection with childhood innocence and devastating loss. It's the song cycle Kinder Totenlieder, Songs on the Death of Children. He finished it in 1904, just as he started working on the Sixth Symphony. The Celeste only appears in the last song, Again, we hear bell-like sounds, here quite low down on the instrument, and they occur especially at the end. The funereal implications are clear, as the poet tells how the dead children rest in their mother's house.
We'll come back to Kindertotenlieder later for perhaps the most poignant of all the song references in Mahler symphonies, but more of that in due course. I did say a moment or two ago that there was a more explicit connection with song in the Seventh Symphony. This is an intriguing work because in some ways it draws together threads, musically and emotionally and symbolically, from the Fifth and Sixth Symphonies, and yet at the same time, in other ways, splits them apart. The seventh is the least classical of Mahler's symphonies. It seems to glory in diffuseness, dislocation, contradiction. There is one song clue, but it tends to confirm what we may well have sensed already. The second of the five movements is called Nachtmusik, night music. There are two night musics in this symphony, and they're very, very different. This first one, according to Mahler, was inspired by Rembrandt's painting The Night Watch, which is a striking study in darkness, in shades of night, with occasional disconcerting flashes of light. In the painting we see soldiers in various lights, some veiled, two very much to the fore, they are the night watchmen of the title. There's a strong sense of movement in the painting, yet also strongly lit, isolated by light, is the figure of a girl. She seems strangely anxious. Why? One can imagine this symbol appealing strongly to Mahler. After the strange sounds at the beginning of this first Nachtmusik, which include a wild birdsong fanfare, bringing in all 17 woodwind instruments as soloists, this music settles into a kind of processional military rhythm. We first hear it tapped out in a weird sound of collenio strings. The expression means with the wood, and the colour you get is affected by turning the bow round and hitting the strings with the wood of the bow. It makes a dry, bony sound, which breaks into the march theme sporadically. same rhythm evokes another song from Des Knaben Wunderhorn, Rivelga, Revali. In the song, the rhythm dominates right from the start. The song Revelga is about soldiers marching at night, so there's an interesting connection with Rembrandt. But it turns out by the end of the song that they're dead. Their skeletons turned out for one last march, the implication being enhanced, I think, in the Seventh Symphony by that skeletal collenio sound. What that means for the symphony as a whole is anyone's guess, but in the case of this movement, it certainly makes a good deal of sense. 
Is Marla making some serious comment about death? Or is it something more sardonic? Or is Marla just enjoying a good gothic romantic ghost story? There's certainly more than a touch of humour in this movement. The Eighth Symphony uniquely uses choral and solo voices virtually throughout. Therefore, there's no need for allusion to sung texts to throw light, or at least if there is, I haven't spotted them. But echoes of the Eighth Symphony and of the song Symphony das Lied von der Erde, the Song of the Earth, play a very significant part in the Ninth Symphony. However, before we turn to Mahler's last completed symphony, let's have a look at the Tenth. Thanks to Derek Cook's sensitive filling out of Mahler's extensive and more or less full-length sketches, we're at least able to follow where Mahler would have gone next after the end of the Symphony No. 9, even though the ending of the Ninth Symphony seems so incredibly final. Yet somehow or other, the Tenth Symphony seems able to start from where the Ninth ends and go on to somewhere quite different, somewhere ultimately possibly more positive. Still, it's a fraught journey. And just how fraught can be judged, or at least underlined, by two striking song references. The second of the two scherzos in the Tenth Symphony, which Mahler left in piano score-like sketches, has a very strong resemblance to the first song of Das Lied von der Erde. Those who know the cycle will recognise it immediately. This nightmarish waltz tempo, this hallucinogenic, desperate character, are all very familiar. Here, for comparison, is the beginning of the first song of Das Lied von der Erde, the drinking song of the earth's wretchedness, where a drunkard seeks oblivion from the horrible truth contained in the recurring refrain, Dunkel ist das Leben, ist der Tod, dark is life, is death. It's important to stress for people who think that everything in Mahler is directly autobiographical that Mahler wasn't prone to alcoholic excess, but he certainly identified with the yearning for oblivion in intoxication of feeling contained in the Chinese poetry that that song sets. But there's an even more haunting and more specific song reference in the Symphony No. 10. It comes in the mysterious little central movement that Mahler called Purgatorio. In the sketch, he adds the words, Order Inferno, is this purgatory or hell? 
Around about this time when he was sketching out the Tenth Symphony, Mahler was shattered by the discovery that his wife Alma was having an affair with the young architect Walter Gropius. The love of his life, his rock, his ideal love, his alma mater, might be about to desert him. Do we find a hint of this in the Purgatorio? Well, certainly this movement invokes another song from Des Knaben Wunderhorn, Das irdische Leben, the earthly life. The very title suggests that it's a kind of opposite, a counterpoint to the child's view of heaven, das himmlische Leben, that made up the finale of number four. And indeed, in content, it really is. Das Irdische Leben is a song about a starving boy calling to his mother for food. She keeps urging patience. Don't worry, there'll be bread tomorrow. Over and over again. But by the time the bread arrives, the boy is dead. The story has a strangely, hauntingly ambiguous quality. Is it what it seems? Or is there something sinister about this mother, constantly promising, yet in the end, fatally disappointing? It's fascinating that its accompaniment should end up in the very movement Mahler apparently began after the discovery of Alma's affair. The similarity of the orchestral sound is striking. It's also striking that that's one of the passages that Mahler fully orchestrated in his sketch for the Symphony No. 10. In this Purgatorio movement, the invocation of the song is followed by an agonised cry from the heart. Well, as a Jewish friend of mine said to me once, there's nothing worse for a Jewish boy than the thought that his mother might not be going to feed him, especially when it comes to bread. Is this a hint of Mahler's own sense of abandonment or potential abandonment if Alma, his holy mother figure, should leave him at this crucial time? But it's time we took our delayed look at the Ninth Symphony. We'll look at the reference to the Eighth first, because it's striking and it's not hard to guess the import. Near the triumphal end of the Eighth Symphony, men's voices, then the whole chorus, sound out assertively the repeated words, Ewig, Ewig, eternally, eternally.
horns call out that very same figure in one of the most agonised crescendos in the finale of the Ninth Symphony. It's very brief, but if you know the Eighth Symphony, especially if you've sung it, it's unmissable. In context, that evocation of the Eighth Symphony's idealistic closing vision sounds particularly desperate, doesn't it? There it was originally associated with the idea of the eternal feminine, Goethe's creative spirit in the poem, or Freud's Holy Mary. It's as though Mahler is saying, some chance. Here, that transcendent striving seems to collapse into desperation and abandonment. And this is all the more significant because this is not the only direct evocation with a setting of the word ewig in the Symphony No. 9. At the end of the previous work, Das Lied von der Erde, ewig is the last word we hear, repeated as at the end of the Symphony No. 8. Yet the setting couldn't be less like that blazing vision of heaven opening. In Das Lied, it's world-weary, suggestive of a mind at least half in love with easeful death, already poised on the threshold of the bliss of extinction.
at the end of Das Lied, the singers repeated Ewigs sink into the orchestral current like a soul sinking back into the primal current of life. The individual consciousness is surrendered as it merges with being. Here's an example, it seems, of Mahler turning not just to Oriental texts, but to Oriental philosophy for a solution to the questions that rack him in his music. That same two-note falling figure associated with Ewig begins Symphony No. 9 after a tiny introduction and it launches the long, song-like first theme. falling figure does suggest, as at the end of Das Lied, a yearning for resolution in eternity. It returns again and again throughout the Ninth Symphony. Sometimes it's inviting, sometimes it's sinister, chilling. Perhaps these are signs that Mahler still wants to live, and there are plenty of indications in that in his frantic scribblings on the manuscript. In the finale, however, that two-note fall is finally completed. It becomes not just one step down, but two in the hymn-like theme of the finale.
There are two interesting invocations of music with words here. Neither of them are by Mahler, but appropriately both of them would have had strong associations for him. The first is the once very popular Victorian funeral hymn Abide With Me, which Mahler almost certainly heard during one of his recent stays in New York. That falling phrase is also connected with Beethoven's piano sonata Das Lebewohl, The Farewell, also known in French as Les Adieux. Why it should be singular in German and plural in French is anyone's guess. This sonata was something of a party piece for Mahler when he was a piano student at the Vienna Conservatory. It also seems to have been the piece which gained him admission and praise at his audition. But the significance of the title is striking. Beethoven actually wrote the syllables of the word Lebevol, farewell, over the first three-note motive of the sonata. Spot the similarity here to the beginning of Mahler's Ninth Symphony, especially when the motive occurs the second time. Beethoven's harmonic twist at the end there is almost identical to what Mahler does in the finale theme of his Symphony No. 9. Eternity Farewell. It all begins to add up, doesn't it? Alma tells us that at the time, Mahler was obsessed by the recent diagnosis of a heart lesion. This was the catastrophe that separated the optimism of the Eighth Symphony from the much more world-weary mood of Das Lied von der Erde and Symphony No. 9. But was it as serious as Alma makes out? There are reasons for treating that with a degree of caution. And certainly there was a far bigger catastrophe in Mahler's life. The sudden death of his adored daughter Maria in 1908. Strikingly, Mahler wrote no music that summer. Alma may not have made quite so much of that in her diary, 
But then she seems to have had rather mixed feelings about her children, as uncorrected versions of her reminiscences and letters do make rather chillingly clear. It's not surprising, then, that the first work after that catastrophe, Das Lied von der Erde, echoes the sound world of Kinder Totenlieder, a work which seemed to look back at the time Mahler wrote it, but now must have seemed eerily, horribly prophetic. Mahler created a special bare instrumental sound at the start of the first song of Kinder Totenlieder. Those same bare textures and the key D minor turn up again in the second movement of Das Lied, the lonely one in autumn. It's a song heavy with a sense of loss, but there's a much more obvious connection to Kinder Totenlieder at the very end of Mahler's Ninth Symphony. It comes in the dying moments of the Adagio. Mahler does actually mark them dying in the score. And yet, obvious though it seems when you know it, it does seem to have escaped some critics, especially those who see this music at the end of the symphony as nothing but a protracted, egocentric leave-taking. Here at the heart of this supposedly self-centred music is a reference, an explicit reference, to the soul-tearing final line of the fourth song of Kindertortenlieder, the poem tells how a bereaved parent still catches him or herself, thinking that the children have only just gone out for a moment, but they'll be back safe home in no time. The words will be easy enough to dismiss as sentimental for anyone who hasn't lost a child. For those who do, they ring horribly true. They're just up there playing on the hills, in the sunlight. We'll hold them again soon. The weather's beautiful on those heights. Here, at the end of Symphony No. 9, we hear that same desperately aspiring phrase again in the closing, faltering moments. Is Marla thinking of his own end? or of loss, his daughter, his brother Ernst, whatever, it would seem to indicate that this is so much more than a self-indulgent depiction of Mahler's own dreaded or longed-for end. It's much more universal than that. 